Welcome to Growing Your Financial Advisory Practice Podcast by Snap Projections, episode 22. I'm your host, Pavel Brabinski, and my goal is to interview experts to provide you with insights, strategies, and actual tactics that you can start applying to grow your financial advisory practice today. For more information, head over to snapprojections.com slash podcast. Now, let's introduce today's featured guest. Today's guest is Diane DeKanek. Diane is a certified financial planner, registered financial planner, and MBA, and president of financial health management. She has been a professional fee-only financial planner for more than 25 years. Financial education has been a major part of Diane's career. She started in financial planning at Royal Trust, where she was involved in a wide variety of financial planning situations, gaining deep experience in downsizing, financial counseling, retirement planning, and expatriate financial planning. Diane conducts education programs for various organizations, including the University of Calgary. Today, she has advised more than 30,000 downsized employees and clients and provided more than 8,000 workshops. Diane, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is really quite exciting. <laughs> ben, it's great to have you on. So let's ju- jump right in. So, so the number of people you helped so far is, is quite impressive. Like it's a massive number. You know, talk about 8,000 uh, workshops. So, but you know what, let's start uh, where pretty much everybody starts. So tell me a little bit more about your firm. So what do you typically do? Who do you typically serve? Well, when we go right back to when I started, which would have been um, about 1995, um, and going back to my Royal Trust years uh, as a financial planner, Royal Trust was unique in the fact that they had multiple fee-for-service only uh, financial planning groups um, right across the country. And Calgary is rather unique because of the oil industry. There's so many cycles where we have massive numbers of people laid off, um, followed by massive numbers of people hired. Um, and so there's, there's a huge cyclicality to it. Um, unfortunately, when Royal Bank acquired Royal Trust, they, I think they didn't really understand the role that the financial planners uh, played um, <laughs> in, the, in the normal uh, business environment. Um, and I had done a business plan to try and introduce the people at the Royal Bank to what role we played in the organization. However, they decided they were not in the business of financial planning. So um, we all got our severance packages. And I've always wanted to go out on my own. And I've figured that was the perfect time to do that. Um, Since the group that I was with actually disbanded, um, a lot of the clients who needed the services of um, a fee-only financial planner to work with their downsized employees, um, they turned to me. And so I kind of fell into this more than good planning, which is kind of odd for being in a planning environment. Um, And so one thing kind of led to another, to another, to another. And so some of the projects that I ended up um, having to do were, you know, thousands of people at a time. So there was a time where I actually had about eight or 10 consultants working for me. Mm -hmm. But what was very interesting about doing that kind of work is that you basically had maybe one to two hours at most to find out about the client and then provide some guidance in how to use their severance, how to replace um, medical benefits, all of the things that they lose with their job. Mm-hmm. Um, so I became very adept really figuring out what's going on with the client. And if I can't get it in the first 20 minutes, I'm in trouble. So it really was evolutionary uh, rather than revolutionary. And fee-for-service back in the 1990s was generally a perquisite for executives and not necessarily something that the rank and file um, and the normal average person would seek out. Um, And so I was really quite a salmon swimming upstream, (laughs) so to speak. So in the first probably 10 years, it was more corporate driven that I was providing services to corporations. Um, As things evolved in the marketplace, that's where I started moving into having a larger majority of my clients now being private. So I still do a lot of corporate work, which is probably 50% of my business, but the other 50% is definitely private. 
Perfect. So you actually addressed my next question. Really, what made you start a planning firm? You sort of it, there was an opportunity, really, and that was the trigger. So, so this is really interesting. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things that you said about going all the way from, of course, 1990s when financial planning really was only for high net worth people, typically executives, and and of course, I mean, uh, it's not like this anymore. I mean, we try to basically make planning much more available to this kind of mass affluent market as well. So, and then you alluded also to um, to the fact that you only have a lot of not a lot of time to start with with uh, uh, with people initially. You, you said that if you don't figure it out, uh, you know, if you don't f- really figure it, uh, well, a lot of information out within the first 20 minutes, then you're in trouble. So so let's talk about your financial planning process. So how do you make this process efficient, right? Because you don't have time, a lot, a lot of time, and you have to, like you have a lot of people to help. So uh, let's maybe talk a, a little bit about your financial planning process. What, you know, what do you do from the start, from the first conversation to when you, when you complete the plan for somebody, when you go to this kind of Googling process? Well, um, technology has certainly been very helpful. And uh, a few years ago, way back when, clients would call and, you know, you'd book appointments and those sorts of things or have somebody do it for you. Uh, So when a client is referred from the career transition firms, they are told to go to my website and book their own appointment. Um, And so when they book their appointment, it's an it's automatically 90 minutes because I have never been able to get things done in 60 minutes. Um, and when they book that, they're sent a bunch of homework, which is basically uh, name, rank, serial number, uh, net worth, cash flow, you know, what their challenges are, what their opportunities are, um, as much financial information as possible, um, and quite an extensive email or letter goes out to them. And at the beginning, I say, please read the whole thing. Because if they're like me, you read the first paragraph in a long email and forget to read the rest. (laughs) So um, anyways, they're asked to bring the paper in because I'd rather write notes and really watch the uh, body language of the client. But I go through every single detail um, in excruciating detail. And more importantly, the cash flow, because the cash flow to me reflects what the client appears to value. So all of that creates the picture of what problems they might be encountering. And if you're in a career transition mode, the most important part is really being able to get from point A to point B without going into financial disaster. Um, and it's very unique financial planning because it's about 180 degrees from what would normally be long-term planning. Um, so a lot of people, if they have never been laid off, have a lot of very wrong assumptions. So, you know, the process is really going through me having a really good picture of their current financial position, as well as what they value and, you know, what might be some of the hot buttons in the family. And I do encourage that, you know, if they have a spouse, that the spouse attends the financial planning time. Lots of times that's not really possible, but I do encourage that. And so, you know, after the first 20 minutes to 30 minutes of me getting to know what's going on, Um, you know, if they're in a high debt situation or, you know, they've just gone through a divorce or, um, you know, all the, all the garbage comes out in that first 20 to 30 minutes, which is really, really important. One, so that I can be sensitive to those, those emotional issues, but create an environment that's hopeful through their transition to make sure that they can last financially as long as possible. So by the end of the 90 minutes, they're usually leaving with a bit of a smile on their face and knowing that what they thought might cover three or four months actually covers six, nine, and sometimes longer if they make some changes and use products and services in ways that they weren't necessarily intended to use. So I make sure that by the time they walk out of the meeting, that they know exactly what they have to do, in what order they have to do that, because that's also very important. And so if their spouse you know, hasn't been at that meeting, they can go home and they can have a, a discussion over um, how they can manage through that transition. 
Well, excellent. So there's so much, so much, uh, so much to talk uh, about just within what you just said. From being you know, sensitive emotionally to their issues to really trying to provide as much value in the first meeting for them, so they at least have uh, they have the path right. So there is they and they, they can take uh, the right action at the right time. So, um, so what really happens next? Like, what is what is what is the next step in the process after this meeting? What are the next couple of uh, building blocks, I guess, of your process? Well, very interesting. Um, I generally do not follow up with the clients per say. It's just kind of been the way it's evolved, especially when there were very large groups of people that you were seeing. Um, However, uh, generally the meeting is quite amicable um, at the end. They have my business card, they have my contact coordinates, and it's, if you need me, you know where to find me. If they need to deal with, say, defined benefit pension plans, uh, that certainly is a uh, flag to say, before you do anything, um, we need to meet again to help you go through the decision-making. And yes, most organizations now have defined contribution pension plans, but for someone who's being terminated and does have a defined benefit pension plan, it is critically important that one knows how that pension plan works because some of them are absolutely platinum um, and you'd be an absolute idiot to uh, commute the value of that pension plan unless you were on death's doorstep. Uh, and there's others that, you know, definitely it makes sense to, to transfer the cash out. Um, so those are some of the critical things that you can't cover generally speaking, that first meeting. Um, And the career transition firms I work with really encourage people to come in to see me immediately um, before they make any decisions. Because generally speaking, and, and this is certainly not a derogatory comment, but in all the CFP courses um, in, and even doing the RFP, downsizing is not taught to financial planners in general. It's, it's a very unique niche and has things that you do completely differently than long-term financial planning. Uh, it's not about the investing at all at this point in time. It really is about cash flow and replacing, you know, keeping the family safe. It, it's a very unique sort of process in that respect. Excellent. So we'll come back to the, the and we'll try to contrast this with a kind of more regular client situation. But when it comes to cash flow, how do you solve the problem for them? And or uh, like what would you do right now in terms of the tool sets and and uh, and, and and the process? Well, it takes me all of about thirty seconds to figure out if their cash flow is um, is true or if it's a wag, uh, which is. Uh, Uh, interesting and I kind of call them on it. A lot of people don't realize that the very, very most important part of financial planning is managing cash. Everything else stems from that because if you can't manage that well, um, you're either in debt or you're living paycheck to paycheck and you don't really necessarily have money to save. And because we live in this plastic world, our gray cells no longer can keep track of what the heck we're doing. So for those of us that are a little longer in the tooth, we can recall when we had a little check register and you know everything was written down and you knew exactly how much money you had at any particular time. And um, 1983, in Calgary at least, is our first automated bank machine that was uh, installed. And from that point on, most people have lost their financial minds because out comes the debit card, out comes the credit card, out comes the Apple Pay or whatever. And so people $20 themselves to death or $50 themselves to death. And cash flow is critically important in any financial plan, whether it's career transition or retirement. Because cash flow is the entire driver of the financial plan. Uh, it's not how much money you necessarily have. It's how much money do you really need to live nicely and figuring out what that nicely really means to you. Um, so, yeah, I, um, I'm a 
really tough on people. Obsessed with cash flow. <laughs> oh, obsessed, big time. And uh, I've had some clients that I worked with over a nine-month period who didn't get it initially. Uh-huh. And after um, our engagement over a nine-month period, when they finally got their cash flow in order, um, they finally said, now we get it. And oh my God, we were spending money on things we never even realized. Um, and our quality of life is now better mm-hmm. and we spend a whole lot less money. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty uh, anal on the cash flow. <laughs> rightfully so, I think. So, so how would you, how would you con- uh, contrast the situation? For example, I understand the career transition is, is, is kind of a very specific area. And I mean, you're dealing with a lot of people, right? So for you, it's, it's a big part of your business. But there is, uh, you have another part of the business that you were really focused on financial planning for, I would say, regular clients, right? And, and those people could be you know, quite wealthy. They may not, they could be mass affluent market, for example, may not have a lot of money as well. So well, like, what kind of interesting situations have you encountered, for example, when you're advising clients, when you're talking about cash flow? And uh, like, what, are the, what are the different situations that you've seen before, that you've seen in your, in your career? Well, oftentimes you get, I would say people who are probably about 50, 55 suddenly see the light at the end of the tunnel and they need to retire. And they really know that they're not ready. Um, and so they're in because they're terrified. Um, and especially in Calgary, you know, with the cyclicality of, of the oil industry. And, you know, thankfully that's changing. But it doesn't necessarily change overnight. Um, so a lot of people are forced into retirement mode, even though they maybe aren't really prepared for it. So again, we look at all of the the things that they're currently doing. And for people who you know really don't know what retirement is is really all about, um, I have a. a form that I've devised for the qualitative aspects. So if people are looking at at moving into retirement, um, I simply kind of say, okay, well, retirement isn't just one stage of your life. It's actually three stages. And you spend the most amount of money at the front end when you're healthy and able to do things and that sort of stuff. Then there comes a point which for a lot of people are generally between somewhere 70 and 80 years of age, where you transition to maintenance mode. Mm -hmm. So to me, there's three stages. And so what we have to look at is what might those look like for clients? Because not everybody wants to travel the world at retirement. Some people have very simple, modest lifestyles um, and you know, net worth is not necessarily an indicator of what the client wants to do at retirement or sees at retirement. So just because someone has a high net worth might be they're just fantastic savers and actually spend very little money. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I have to encourage them to spend more, um, which is which is kind of comical. Um but if they do have, you know, a fairly large net worth and are very modest spenders, I usually ask them about their wills and I'll ask if there's charities that they have listed in their wills. And in many cases, that's, that is part of their, um, their estate planning. So sometimes I encourage them to set up you know, small foundations. Uh, there are many organizations that for as little as $10,000 will set up a charitable foundation, which will help them on the income taxes mm-hmm. um, throughout retirement. So, you know, it's really hard to pitch and hold clients um, based on their net worth until you hear their story and really find out about who they are and what's important. And so, to me, it's it's very one of the biggest lessons I've learned in in this in my practice is to shut up and listen <laughs> because the the client is using a very different part of their brain than I'm using, yeah. and I have to understand what that part of that their brain requires to have a satisfying life, and sometimes my role after I find out what they're all about is to give them alternatives 
to still satisfying some needs that maybe if they're not quite financially prepared for retirement, that they can substitute. My family kind of jokes that I'm one part financial planner, one part psychologist, and one part marriage counselor. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of comes up with uh, financial planners. My conversations with financial planners uh, very often, actually, that's just not just not numbers. But so, okay, so we talked about the kind of higher network clients. But on the, on, for, for clients, for example, that may not have enough money, right? They have not been maybe great savers. Maybe their network is not, not, not uh, you know, in millions. But I imagine those conversations will be different, right? And then if somebody's not paying attention to cash flow, I mean, some of those conversations probably are going to be you know, surprising, maybe even eye-opening to some of the clients. So tell, tell me about those kind of conversations. Well, those are interesting because with the media and the lack of financial education for most uh, Canadians, um, in the last, you know, 20-some-odd years, I participated in, in two research projects which show that less than 5% of all Canadians have had any personal financial education. And so most of our, quote, education is really from media. Um, And if you hear something often enough, um, you tend to believe it. And so one of the biggest obstacles to people retiring who don't necessarily have a lot of money is home ownership. And when I mention this, I suddenly grow 10 heads. And I know there's going to be some people out there who think I'm an idiot. But home ownership, you know, is, is kind of the uh, gold standard. And it's your largest investment. Well, it's actually your largest money pit. So when you really look at the cost of owning a home and the maintenance and the upkeep, even though maybe your house is paid off and people say, well, you know, it's just the um, utilities, property tax and insurance. Well, a paid off house doesn't send a check to you in the mail. You're still feeding it like kids, cats and dogs. And so when I'm looking at their net worth and if they want to retire, selling off their property and renting is just so much more economical and all of a sudden changes a retirement financial plan that doesn't work into providing a lifestyle without worry and enjoyment. And so when I first introduced this, whether it's in my retirement planning courses or whether it's on an individual basis, there is just so much pressure put on people owning their home and also aging in place. And when you look at the reality of the situation, if you have, you know, people who are in their 80s living in their home, uh, it typically is not maintained properly. You know, there's a lot of danger and stuff, but we are so convinced that that is something that we must have. And so that often is the biggest obstacle for people being able to retire. And, you know, the the term renting is like, oh, I'm paying someone else. But when you do the math and look at what you, you know, your what your property taxes are, what your insurance is, um, your utilities and upkeep, if you take the money that's in your house and invest it and it's generating revenue and you take what you would be paying anyway, all of a sudden, there are so many more opportunities to have a quality of life. So that's that's something that's a real obstacle for a lot of people, especially if they're kind of in that that middle means area. Um, you know, they're not super wealthy, but they have some assets. So how do you illustrate that? And that might be a little bit of a leading question, right? Because I want to talk about the tool sets that you use. But uh, you asked, you you talked about the qualitative aspect. How do you address this quantitative side for them? Like, what do you do for them so they can see? Really? Oh, you take out a piece of paper and you just do the math right then and there. Um, you know, back at the envelope, descriptions are 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 really good. So I always have paper and stuff to draw on um, to kind of you know 
show the example. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of jaw-dropping, but it flies in the face of what people, what most Canadians value. Um, you know, they've always been told that uh, renting is is not great. And, um, you know, in terms of of illustrating that if I'm doing a financial plan, um, and of course I use Snap and I love Snap. Um, Thank you. <laughs> if I think, you know, that this individual needs to see both of them, it's rather jaw dropping for them. So I don't necessarily, you know, in the conversation, I'll draw pictures, but then you integrate it into the financial plan as a secondary scenario. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's the jaw dropper. So this is really interesting because, you know, yes, uh, I, well, you've been a long-term uh, uh, client of, of, of ours and you've been using Snap Projections. I, I just looked up before the interview since, uh, you know, May 2015, which is interesting because we actually ran Lambda around the time and we had a group of users that helped us to, to kind of get the software to version 1.0. But then you were the first one to actually uh, uh, sign up after that process. And so that's been, you know, three and a half, four years almost. So, so and um, I want to talk a little bit about it because I think this might might be valuable to 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 other other planners, other advisors, because what I really admire about you, like you are you're making your practice very efficient. So you're very efficient. At the same time, you're adding a lot of value. You're paying attention to tax. So so how do you take this complex information, and how in what way do you use uh, it? For example, the you know the application snap, whether interactively or just uh, just just the reports with clients. So how do you do that? So it actually so they're not overwhelmed. You control the situation. You know what what they're and you can get your points across? Well, um, I mean, my first interview with them is 90 minutes. And sometimes it's longer than that. Um, You know, if I don't have a client after them or if we get into something that's really complicated and very unique to them. But more by accident, um, because of a really large snowstorm we had a few years ago, um, I found that actually delivering the plan to them online was one of the most um, productive ways of delivering the plan rather than sitting around a computer screen and that sort of stuff. So my first meeting with them is is in person. Now, if I have clients that are outside of Calgary, I mean, I do have many clients that I have never met personally. Uh, We've just done, you know, telephone or online meetings and stuff where they've sent me the information. And I go through the same process on the telephone. The only thing is I can't necessarily read their body language. Um, But after we meet, I ask them to book their next appointment as a 90-minute online meeting about seven to 10 days after I've seen them. Uh, And that's how I organize my planning work so that I do it within, you know, about 48 hours of meeting with them because I'll forget about all the, uh, the details because of the, of the clients. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they either have a desktop computer at home or they plug their laptop into their TV and, I talk to them on the telephone. So um, they see this you know, big screen of numbers and I said, don't get really intimidated. So I explain what each row of numbers are. And um, the interesting part is that this is also a good way to confirm that the numbers that they gave me, in fact, are correct. So from the paperwork that they've given me and I've inputted it, oftentimes they'll go, you know what? I realize that that's incorrect. Because they're at home, they can go to their files and get the right numbers or go into the screen, you know, go into a a program and verify stuff if they're unsure. Mm -hmm. So I start with the status quo of what they've delivered um, to me. And um, in some cases, things run very well. But um, as a matter of cash flow and a matter of taxation, my philosophy and my experience says is if we can keep the tax man off the dinner table, then we need a lot less money to retire on. Absolutely. And a lot of programs, you know, will put a you know an average tax of twenty five percent or thirty percent, and this is 
what I most appreciate about SNAP is that it has a real tax calculation. And one of the interesting things I found is if I can keep my clients in a 20% effective rate or less, um, that has been the most efficient point in the retirement planning. And usually they aren't into OAS clawback. Now, there are some clients who have assets that, you know what, it's virtually impossible to not have OAS clawback. And I guess that's a good thing. But for the average person, um, what it helps me to do is dispel the myths that continue in the financial planning world, like use your tax paid assets first and defer your uh, tax deferred stuff to, you know, 71. And my comment is, you know, defer, 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 but what are we deferring to? And the older we get, the closer we are to tipping off the planet Earth. And, um, you know, if you have a lot of deferred assets, potentially they're taxable all in the year of death. And all of a sudden, you know, that 20% is, um, rather cheap uh, tax rather than uh, paying, you know, 48 or 50, depending which province you're in. So once, you know, I've delivered kind of the status quo, um, we can now in real time, you know, make a copy um, of, of the scenario. And in real time, we can say, okay, well, what if you did spend an extra $500 a month? And we're talking about the the average middle class, not necessarily the high net worth client. And all of a sudden, they kind of go broke at age 74. And it's like, oh my goodness. You know, it it really brings home how important managing everything is. Um, And I I don't use a high rate of return um, for their general assets. So my real rate of return in there is about 3%, which, you know, if they have a well-invested portfolio, that should be about right. But knowing quite well that some years we might have a minus 10 or 20 and, you know, a plus 10 or 20. So, you know, you can run Monte Carlo simulations till the cows come home and you're never going to be right. But it really gives them great understanding of how minor changes early on can have broad implications 10 or 15 years down the road. Um, And that's a truly aha experience for people. And when, when they have those experiences, my value to them has suddenly just skyrocketed. Well, I'm not surprised. So, yeah. So um, after, you know, we've gone through this, then I go ahead and print off the report, but I also send the screenshots um, that you so nicely built in uh, that dump into Excel uh, spreadsheets. And I just tell them there's no, there's no calculations in there. You can't change anything. But depending upon how the person processes information and numerical information, sometimes those screenshots are, are more valuable to some people, whereas the report being more in a linear fashion works better for others. And I use the, um, the last page to put all of the, okay, this is when you're going to convert your RSPs or your, uh, you know, and this is why, and this is when you're going to start CPP. And in your case, you know, you're retiring later, you have way too much money in your RSPs. So we're going to defer OAS to age 70. So, um, you know, basically I summarize all of the recommendations that we had on our 90 minute online meeting on that last page. Send that to them. And I basically say, you know, take two or three weeks to review the stuff. If there's any questions, we can do it all over again. And, you know, um, that's, that's kind of, then when we're done, we're done. And so for all of those types of plans, I have a flat fee. Can you tell us what it is? So we uh, have an understanding of how we pay the services. Um, for a basic mom and pop uh, financial plan, I charge $900 plus GST. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's relatively high 
But given what many other people integrate, um, you know, oftentimes fee-only financial planners are charging two or three thousand dollars, and so. The the people that I really, really love working with is Joe Average because no one's servicing them. Uh, the banks don't deal with them. Everybody's deal, you know, chipping over the two million plus client, but no one's helping the people that have under a million dollars worth of assets. And so yes, they see my price being rather high at the same time. Once they've gone through the process, because they know they have to, I've never really cost my client a dime because of the things that I've put in place and how much money I actually save them over the course of their lifetime. The tight savings and everything. I, mean, I, I could char- charge them $90,000 and that would probably be beneficial for them. But um, yeah, it goes up from there if people have corporations and, you know, or if want. Um, investment analyses or whatever but that's the general mom and pop so so there's a lot of great things that you said and i'm just going to pick up on a few of them so the first thing is you actually use initially you're you're looking at the software you're looking at the numbers that they enter in terms of their assets and salary and and the interesting thing is that maybe not uh, it's not uh, uh, apparent to everybody uh, uh, is that you just don't ask them to to make sure you're not putting them on the spot saying that those numbers are incorrect, but you're just ask, asking them to double check the numbers. So, and sometimes in a lot of cases, uh, people just slap those numbers together, right? They don't pay attention or they sometimes even won't disclose maybe debt or something like this, right? But the fact that you're doing this in a way that it gives them comfort, maybe even in the comfort of their own home, it's, it's easier for you to get the right information from them so the information is correct. And then you can use this actually to build a plan that, that actually matters to them. So, so that's, that's really brilliant, I think. And uh, um, I haven't seen this, um, uh, uh, this approach as, uh, as much, I guess. Uh, and then the other thing is that you sort of use, this, use the, the, the software and you know, drive the cash flow analysis to dispose certain myths. So you can say, well, there's some general rules of thumb, but you know, let's look at your situation. Let's look exactly what's going to happen with you and your spouse and the combination, whether you have income splitting opportunities or not, whether you have to we have to make decisions around the community, for example, defined benefit pension value, things like that. So that's real, really useful too. And, uh, and then the other thing is that you actually tailor your approach. And you said you mentioned body language, right? I mean, right now with video conferencing, uh, to some extent, it's not the same as in person, of course, right? But you, you might be able to even pick up some of the information from the body language. And then you tailor the approach, right? You, some, some clients love the, the Excel spreadsheets just to see the numbers. And some, of the, some other ones, maybe the, maybe the charting will be, will, be, will be easier for them. And then, uh, and, and then you kind of t- tailor your approach, which, which is super useful as well. And uh, so, so that's, these are the three things that I just kind of picked up right now. So when you look at your business, so let's go back to the high-level sort of um, approach. When, when you look at the, your business uh, from you know, 30,000 feet, uh, like what do you think is key to running a successful fee-for-service practice? Oh, I think the most important things are integrity and that what you want is the person to walk away feeling one that, you know, if they've made mistakes in the past, the past is the past, you know, that there's hope for the future by maybe changing things or, um, you know, supporting the fact that, yeah, they've done all the things right. And for them to continue doing that, it's not really about necessarily the money. Um, It's about ensuring that they are hopeful about living nicely for the rest of their lives, whatever that is. I guess, you know, one, I, I have learned to listen a great deal. Um, and I've also learned not to judge. Um, everybody has a story and you need to understand that story. And, you know, sometimes there's some pretty awful things that have happened in people's lives. And, you know, they do come in here um, sometimes feeling intimidated because they feel they're going to be judged. What I want to understand is their story because they may have had some real traumatic things that they're recovering from and often feel rather hopeless uh, or that, you know, it'll be Freedom 95 for them. So it's really treating them as if, you know, they're someone near and dear 
uh, and that you really care about their particular situation, not not necessarily about, you know, well, geez, you're really stupid and you should have saved this sort of thing. Um, you know, throw that out the window and find out what's going on. And if you can help them to change some of their behaviors, if you can help them recover from disasters um, and fears, I think that then I've done my job. Yes, it's a numerical job, but we're dealing with human beings and who have all kinds of stories behind that. And you need to honor them and respect them. And that, I think, leads to success. Wow, that's that's very powerful. And uh, I could not agree more with that. That's that's great. So uh, let's focus on the difficult aspects of, of, of running the practice. Like, for example, what, what do you find was, was the most difficult for you when you were building the practice? What, what do you find the most difficult in advising clients? Uh, what, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. What takes time? I, I don't know, some of the frustrations that you've had. Well, I, um, I have a very interesting situation is that I do work from home um, and home happens to be downtown Calgary. And uh, we have a boardroom that I started renting um, about 11 years ago. And um, I used to have the office, you know, in downtown Calgary. And when you're fee for service, you have only so many hours in a day that you can bill. Um, and so you really have to work at um, innovative ways to keep your costs down. And, you know, it's a choice that I made because I really have never wanted to sell product. I have never wanted to be in the commissioned environment um, because, you know, uh, the big financial organizations are dictating what you have to do. And, um, you know, I've always kind of been a contrarian. And so when you run fee for service and you're not charging two or three thousand dollars for financial plans, and there's, there's a lot of organizations that do that, and that's terrific. But when I looked at the niche that I really, really, truly wanted to operate in, I am expensive, but I'm not. Um, and the, way that you run this business is in a very contrarian way. So at first, a lot of people would kind of wrinkle their brows at, you know, knowing that they're coming to a condominium corporation's boardroom. Um, but there's free parking um, for my guests. And, uh, you know, our, uh, our transit system was kind enough to move the station one block. So it now has the station right behind me. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, it, it's just a different model altogether. And so if you can keep your costs down super low, mm -hmm. um, that means that I think the clients respect that because, you know, if I'm telling them that they need to, you know, tighten up here or tighten up there or they need to reconsider stuff, they can see that I've done the same thing. And one of the my um, mantras is that I never ask my clients to do anything I haven't done. So if I'm asking them to track their cash flows, I do it and I've done it for, oh God, the last 20 years. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, I, I want them to know that I feel their pain. So I try to practice what I preach. Yeah, and, and it builds really consistent story, and, and it, it's it's kind of consistent with what's happening in the even on the product side right now when fees are going down, right? So so it's all kind of we're we're really focused on fees. So when when you when actually you when you look at the industry and you look at uh, when you talk to clients, uh, what are some of the things that people misunderstand the most when it comes to financial planning? Like what what are some Everything. of the some of the bigger biggest <laughs> myths that that you've seen so far? I know it's a big topic, but maybe you can you can share one or two. Well, you know, the problem is um, everything because there's no real education. And kind of going back to the discussion of, of presenting their plan online, that is the first time for many people 
to really understand how every part of their financial world is connected because they see things in silos. You know, here's my RSPs, here's my this, here's my that. And so they tend to silo things in their head. Now what we're doing with the planning is integrating all of it. And that's where the big aha comes in because there's really very little understanding of how everything is connected and um, how, you know, one action ripples through a lot of different things. So it's like throwing a stone in, you know, in some water, right? The the ripple effect continues for a very long time and a very large distance. So it it's it's really clients starting to see the interconnectivity of all of the actions that they do. I think it's a great point because you know I always say that financial planning is it's not rocket science, but the problem is that there's so many moving things, so many moving aspects. When you move, for example, change cash flow, when you change contributions, for example, uh, to uh, let's say to to assets, uh, then there's always clawback, right? And if you don't see how it all in, it kind of interacts with each other uh, right in front of you, then then it's, then it's really hard to make a decision. So, so, so that's, uh, I can see that's a, that's a big one. Um, so, uh, a couple of questions before we wrap up here. So, uh, you know, like you've been doing this for a long time and, uh, you're clearly excited about helping clients. And I really love that uh, about you as well. And, uh, do you have any projects that are, you know, in particular, uh, you know, exciting to you right now? Like what's, what's the future for you right now? Next, you know, next six, 12 months, is there anything exciting coming up? Oh, very much so, except I'm going to keep that under under wraps for a while. <laughs> um, it's a project that actually uh, emanated about 15 years ago, and I used it um, when I was doing my MBA. Uh, in one of my courses, I actually modeled this project. Um, so it's been in the back burner for about 15 years. The technology wasn't really there. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about the project coming up, but I am keeping it. But you can talk about it. Okay. Under wraps <laughs> and, uh, you know, have a big to-do to launch it. So, uh, okay. yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of projects that I still still have passion about. And uh, everybody asks when I'm going to retire and I look at them and say, why would I retire when I'm still passionately involved in something that I love doing? And um, I'd like to think I'm pretty good at, you know, maybe that sounds, um, you know, kind of bad, but... I love what I do and I love the people I meet and I learn so much from my clients. So it's, yeah, I, I can't see ever stopping. <laughs> okay, so Dan, a couple of questions. One question that I always ask at the end. So you've shared a lot of value here, of course, a lot of wisdom. So, But this podcast is all about growing the practice. So do you have anything else, any other parting words of wisdom for the listeners? Oh, I think... You know, the, the hardest problem is that when you're in this environment, if you do a lot of marketing, you know, something kind of falls out of the, you know, apples fall out of the tree if you shake enough trees. And the problem in, in the type of work that you do is that all of a sudden when the apples fall out of the tree, then like any entrepreneur, then you're busy making apple pie. Um, and so there's always the cyclicality to to specifically this business, um, which, you know, with the CRM uh, changes of, you know, lowering fees and people going to um, fee-for-service, the biggest issue is variability of income. And anybody who does this work, that is probably the biggest challenge because, again, you're limited to the number of hours that you can work. And the other issue is that, you know, if you hire people, well, there are periods of time where you're really, really busy. And then there's periods of time where you're not. So it's, there's always a struggle with traveling down this particular road, which I think is unique to being strictly fee for service where, uh, you know, you don't have any trailer fees. You don't, I personally have never taken referral fees, uh, so clients know that they are—they're the only ones paying me. 
there isn't someone in the background giving that. And that's probably the most difficult part of this type of business is that um, income is extremely variable. And if I could find, you know, finding a way to have what I call pajama money, um, where you have a consistent info of income is the biggest challenge for this type of business. So any opportunities basically to have this kind of the passive aspect of the business that would be that actually makes this uh, variability of income, I guess, less stressful initially when you're starting, right? When you're established, it's maybe things are a little different. Uh, well, this is great. Uh, so, uh, Diane, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, maybe work with you on some of those exciting projects uh, uh, or maybe follow you, uh, how would they do that? What's the best way to reach you? They can certainly go to my website, which is just a kind of brochure at this point in time, hopefully. Um, um, in the next year, we'll, we'll make it a bit more um, exciting, but they're certainly welcome to, um, to go to my website. They can send me an email uh, if they'd like to call me. I'm very happy to take calls, though I, you know... Um, You're busy. <laughs> I'm busy, so uh, I get to to people as quickly as I can. Though uh, come January, I will have an administrative assistant uh, on a much more full time basis. Um, I'm I'm looking at a lot of things to free up time so that my pro- I will have some time for my project. But I'm very happy to mentor people who want to go down this road um, because it really doesn't matter when you start this business and where you are in the business, the same things happen just because of the nature of of what we do when you're strictly fee-for-service. So, you know, there's always interesting challenges. And over 23 years, um, my income somehow tends to be very consistent from year to year. But um, there was a period in 2003 where the lights went out on career transition stuff, and it was my worst year ever um, from 1995. So it was also a wake-up call for me to to make sure that my business wasn't just tied to one industry or one format. So um, you know, I'm always happy to to help other people be successful because that gives me joy that's great and uh, you know the successful people always help other or usually help uh, want to help other people to be successful so that's great that you said that that you're maybe open to uh, to even mentoring and uh, and i'm sure if uh, anybody is listening uh, here we'll link up your note uh, will your website so they will be able to get in touch with you so uh diane this was a lot of fun so thank you very much for coming on the show and providing so much value oh thank you pavel this was just an absolute joy And that's it for this episode. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at podcast at snapprojections.com. And if you're enjoying the show and want more of the amazing guests sharing incredibly valuable knowledge, head over to iTunes and leave us a great review, which helps us get discovered. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.